Hi, and welcome to Economist on Zoom, getting coffee. This is a podcast about informal conversations with leading economists and the big questions that keep them busy and that are relevant to all of us. I'm your host, Danny Bahar. In today's episode, we are joined by Ricardo Hausmann. He is a professor of the practice of international political economy at Harvard University and the director of the Growth Lab at Harvard Center for International Development. In the early 1990s, he was Minister of Planning of his home country, Venezuela. After that, he became the first chief economist of the Inter-American Development Bank. Ricardo doesn't really need a lot of introductions. He's one of the most influential economists globally, and as such, he's a highly respected figure both in academic and policy circles. Today, he shares with us his thoughts about the global recession caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, about his very own research on economic development and the role of knowledge and know-how, and much more than that. Well, let's get right into it. Ricardo Hausmann, welcome to Economist on Zoom getting coffee. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so I know you well, Ricardo. So this is really, really a conversation between friends. You, you were my advisor during the PhD already a long time ago, looks like. And um, one, there's one thing I never understood about you, which is what are you? Are you a macroeconomist? Are you a development economist? Are you an economist of growth? Uh, how, how do you define yourself? Or maybe you don't like labels. Well, I think I'm a trespasser. Okay. I, I, I've always been driven by the topics of the time. When I finished my PhD, it was just in time for the Latin American debt crisis. And uh, it was a very long debt crisis. Uh, so the whole 1980s was uh, a period in which macroeconomics was paramount. Uh, then in 1994, I became chief economist of the Inter-American Development Bank. Macro was a very big thing still. I mean, we, we were, you know, very soon after the, the, the Brady plans and the structural reforms and, and things like that. By the end of the 1990s, I started to convince myself that, um, uh, that it's in the 1990s, we thought if we fix the macro, growth will come back. End of story. And then I sort of like realized that we fixed the macro and growth was not coming back. And uh, so that uh, while at the time the paradigm was if you fix the macro, you know, growth will take care of itself. Suddenly I started to believe that uh, growth uh, would not take care of itself. And then I started to think more about growth and, and the elements of growth and, and how, I, how I could understand, the, uh, you know, uh, what accelerates growth. So I spent a lot of, a, a lot of my last say 20 years thinking about growth. Uh, but you know, every so often there is a macro crisis in between. Uh, so you know, the collapse in commodity prices in 2014, for example, or the global financial crisis in 2009. So, and right now with COVID, so there's, you know, the macro is, is, is back on. So I, I, I'm, I like to work on whatever you know, worries me uh, or whatever I think is important at the time. So you're very worried and very busy right now during COVID. 
Well, actually, I, I've been privileged to, you know, to create a, you know, the growth lab, which I direct, which is a group of about 50 people at the Harvard Kennedy School. You know, we created a task force to help countries manage the, the, the COVID shock. And we've been working with some 12 countries. And it's been sort of like super interesting because countries are very different epidemiologically, socio sociodemographically, but also, also macroeconomically. Some of them have pegged exchange rates, others have inflation targeting and floating. Some have, you know, access to international finance, others are restricted. Some, you know, have been more willing than others to impose lockdowns. Those lockdowns have been differentially effective. So, so we have, uh, we have been able to, to learn a lot from, you know, what are the questions and maybe how to think about answering those questions. Because it seems like, you know, you, you, you seem to be one of the right people for the right times because COVID is such that it's having a huge impact right now, huge shock, macroeconomic shock and, and beyond, of course. But it's also going to change how we see the world in the future. So I think you, you don't work on both. So, I mean, I guess one of the questions I had for you was one of the things I learned in your class um, 10 years ago, I think, uh, gosh, 10 years ago, um, was that um, this rule of thumb that you taught us in a very clever way, which is, you know, when a crisis comes, um, if it's temporary, you borrow. If it's permanent, you adjust. What is this crisis? Is it temporary? Is it permanent? Is it both? And, you know, what countries have to do? Well, you have to think of uh, sort of like, the, uh, we hope it's mostly a temporary crisis. That is, that uh, it's, it's a crisis that, um, that will disappear once there's a vaccine and there's vaccination. Not just a vaccine, but vaccination. And as you know, it took right. forever to get everybody vaccinated against polio or smallpox and so on. So um, vaccination will be a process. But, but after that, it should be behind us. What, what is the conventional wisdom there, you think? I, I mean, once a vaccine is in, like it could take more than a year to do the process. It, it, will, it will take, say, um, a year in the more developed countries. It will take probably longer elsewhere. But that means that the net present value of the temporary shock is big. That is, it's, it's not, um, so there is a permanent component to that shock. There's a permanent component. And, and as a consequence, you have to think that uh, you want fiscal policy to be supportive in the short run, uh, but with coupled with some adjustment in the medium term. Um, uh, you don't want to do the adjustment now, maybe, but you want to signal your willingness to adjust now so that markets are supportive of you now. Uh, if, if you lose the uh, market support, then, then you'll have to adjust now. You won't be able to finance it. And, you know, yet of most of these plans, uh, I guess maybe that, that it's different. Uh, most of these plans are really going to you know, to, to save and rescue. I mean, they're, they're not really uh, stimulus packages. They're really going to help people thrive. So we're not even there to start thinking about how a stimulus package would look. We're not even trying, we're not even thinking about growth. We're just thinking about, you know, how do we, you know, really help people thrive and not go under, go under in, in, in bigger ways. Is that fair to say? So I would say that the, in the majority of the countries I'm working with, the most expensive thing in the budget 
is to finance the collapse in tax revenues. Because you told people to stay home, well, they're not spending, they're not working, etc. There's been a humongous collapse in tax revenues. And in some of the Latin American countries, there's been a humongous collapse in employment, but huge, uh, you know, unimaginably large. Uh, but uh, in the case of Peru and Colombia, they posted, you know, uh, dramatic reductions. In, in Colombia, they lost 5 million jobs out of, you know, 12 million total or 17 million total. So, okay. so it's a humongous uh, decline in, in jobs in, 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 in people who are classified as employed. Uh, the absolute numbers are incredible. There was 1.2 million people lost their jobs in the city of Lima. So, so it's it's a humongous phenomenon, and and you know social transfers are minuscule relative to what you see in the U.S. In the U.S., for example, social transfers were so large that personal disposable income went up. It didn't go right. down; it went up. Right. So, so people are feeling protected. Well, that's not the feeling in most of the countries that we we work on. So they they. Uh, uh, they are having, you know, very, very large, you know, double-digit fiscal deficits, uh, but with uh, not very generous uh, support packages because they would not be able to, to afford them. But so far, these large deficits have been financeable. So, I mean, that, uh, that's, a good, that's good news for now, and we hope that, uh, as you said, you know, it's not a yet after the end of the sentence because there's always the risk that the financial systems could start also seeing some 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 problem. Do you foresee something like that, or uh, I think it's bound to happen in in several countries that uh, that you know you have a very serious recession. Sometimes it's because of lockdown. Sometimes it's because you have you know places where tourism is important and tourism has collapsed. Right. Places where remittances are important and remittances might have fallen significantly. Uh, places where um, uh, you know, commodity exports have been disrupted. Um, and so, so, uh, so you see a recession on top of that, you know, lockdowns and social distancing. So you would expect um, that, uh, you know, companies are not doing too well, that non-performing loans would increase, uh, that, you know, bank uh, uh, stability, financial stability might be questioned by, you know, the quality of credit, then maybe banks are scared and they retrench and don't want to lend. So, so that may cause, uh, you know, uh, uh, what was already a, a bad recession to become a more durable recession and one that is harder to get out of. And that may happen in, 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 in some places. That's why I think it's so important that uh, countries get ample financial support from the international community led by the IMF in, in amounts that, um, you know, I've been critical saying that, uh, yes. that, you know, that we are facing a, a category five storm and that uh, the international community is preparing for a tropical storm. Yeah, I saw your piece on that on Project Syndicate. And, and I guess one of the questions that I left, and I want to go to the long term in, in a minute, but uh, one of the questions is the IMF has the capabilities to really scale up. Um, does it go by, you know, a, cap a huge capitalization round? I mean, w w what is stopping them from, from scaling up? One of the discoveries uh, from, from COVID is that um, uh, 
all um, regional development banks and multilateral development banks like the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, uh, the, uh, um, the Inter-American Development Bank and so on, they were allowed to become midgets. Uh, that when, you know, the world over the last 20 years, there's been very little capitalization of these banks. They have become much smaller as a share of, of GDP. And, and so when the crisis came, uh, you know, the World Bank could announce a pittance, uh, really peanuts, um, uh, very little extra financing and a lot of, you know, reallocation of financing from one thing to COVID. So, um, so but midgets. Very, very small. The only one that really had a big balance sheet was the IMF. So the IMF announced that they had a trillion dollars to lend. Now, a trillion dollars in the US doesn't sound that much because you know, we've already spent $3 trillion and they want to spend a couple of trillion more within a year. I mean, actually in less than a year. No? So, but a trillion is 70 times the announcement of the IMF and 300 times the announcement of the Inter-American Development Bank. So, so they're just two orders of magnitude bigger. And the reason why the IMF is big is because it was made big to deal with a European crisis. Because of the European crisis, the, uh, the IMF was made you know, a macroeconomically significant institution. The others were allowed to dwindle. So my point is that since the IMF exists, it doesn't need capitalization and has the resources, resources uh, available to it, it doesn't have the lending rules that will allow the mobilization of those resources, but they have them. And that's why we need to fight over what are the rules that the IMF is going to follow in terms of lending. And they've just relaxed uh, a couple of rules, but still, in my opinion, not, not, not enough. But the money's there, the money is there. And okay. it would be convenient for the money to be mobilized. I want to move now to the, to the, a little bit to the long run, because you've been working in your past decade, uh, if not more, uh, on something that I've been very influenced by your, by your thought on that, which is the idea that um, the key to growth is know-how and maybe know-who, right? So um, I think that we've talked informally and I know that you've thought about how, you know, because of COVID, the world is going to change in such a fundamental way that it's really going to have a big impact on on, on growth, uh, but I think that your perspective is really, uh, you know, novel and interesting. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, uh, you and I come from a country that uh, supposedly has a lot of oil and a lot of other natural resources. And so it thinks of itself as rich. And I like to say that countries are not rich because of what they have, but because of what they know how to do. So, right. so that and this, is, this is Venezuela, just for the record. Yeah, That's exactly. the country we both come from, yes. Yes, yes. So, so um, uh, you know, it's very obvious that, uh, you know, the natural world is what it is. Your ability to transform the natural world implies that you have the capacity to bring in some machines, that you have the capacity to maybe uh, find some book of instructions of how to do things. But in the end, the ability to do things depends on know-how and know-how is an ability to perform tasks that resides in brains and only in brains. And that modern technology requires not just people with a lot of know-how individually, but with a diversity of know-how that uh, is necessary to implement uh, whatever technology you're trying to implement. And technologies differ in how diverse is that know-how. 
you know, a typical modern corporation requires people to know about accounting, about finance, about human resource management, about procurement, about um, in marketing, about branding, about contracts, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to bring so that teams of people who know about all of these things in order to do things in the world. So, so the modern economy is all about connecting human brains, connecting human brains. And, and you know, if you look at a more backward society, people work more individually in, in small firms, in, in, in family firms, where they only aggregate the know-how that's in that family. But if you look at a modern corporation, you know, if you're going to make an airplane, well, that's a huge network of you know, thousands of suppliers of people in, in many different areas that all have to come together to make just say one airplane. Uh, so so uh, know-how is, is, is what's behind productivity. It's what's behind the technology. It's really, it's, it, 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 and it's this social know-how, this uh, collective know-how, this network know-how. And what is COVID? COVID is an attack against the ability of people to, to network. Um, it's uh, the ability of people to come together. So you know, right now, uh, uh, you and I are able to do this conversation because we're talking through Zoom. And Zoom has been sort of a, a great discovery. And by the way, you know, the IMF has been able to uh, deliver a bunch of loans uh, by talking to people through Zoom. Um, but uh, you know you cannot build a highway through Zoom. You cannot design a, an irrigation network through Zoom. Uh, so there's a lot of ac activities that cannot are not zoomable, are not zoomable. Um, now, right. interestingly, um, uh, you have done a really spectacular work in showing the importance of uh, of moving brains. Um, because as, as I like to say, it's, it's very hard to move know-how into brains. It takes a long time to become good at something. Malcolm Gladwell says it takes 10,000 hours to right. become good at something. Uh, but it doesn't take much time at all to move the brain. So, so uh, moving brains has been forever a very important part of the way technology diffuses. And you've done spectacular work to show that uh, you know, you. when people move, uh, they, they move the know-how with them. So you have this beautiful paper with, um, with Hillel Rapoport uh, showing that uh, the former Yugoslavians that went to Germany uh, for temporary prote protection status and then were forced to go back after the war, uh, transformed the, uh, the technological possibilities of, 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 um, of the former Yugoslavia. Uh, and um, you know, we, we have a joint paper showing that if a country is neighbored by a con another country that knows how to do something, you learn from your neighbors. And there's a, so, so, so this idea that no, moving brains is very important to, to, uh, to, to mobilizing technological possibilities and diversification opportunities and growth. So, so we were working with some you know, anonymized and aggregated data that MasterCard had given us on business travel. We were saying, gee, business travel, how big is business travel? Is something like 1.7% of global GDP. It's uh, $1.5 trillion a year. So why the hell are companies paying all that money in business travel if they can, you know, FaceTime, Skype. Or Zoom or Skype, yes. Whatever. Correct. So why are they spending all this money? 
And so, so there has know, to be, there must be returns to that. There must be returns to that because it cannot be just a, a, a fluke. And, and not only that, it's, it's, a, it's an activity that was growing at three times global GDP, is at, at the rate of growth of global GDP. So, so in spite of them being supposedly substitutes, it was growing very, very healthily. So, so we said to ourselves, you know, what's behind this? And, you know, our initial study showed that, you know, it's not that correlated with bilateral trade. It's not even that correlated with flows of FDI, but it seems to be much more correlated with the fact that companies are global. They have establishments around the world. According to the Dun & Bradstreet data set, there's 1.5 million establishments that are owned by firms in another country. So managing those firms implies, you know, making uh, the problem solving capabilities, the supervisory capabilities, the networking capabilities, means moving a lot of people. And, you know, and sometimes just the thinking, you know, if you think of the McKinsey's of this world or the Accenture's of this world or the, the, the you know, the law firms of this world, you know, they, they travel a lot because they, they have some know-how that they make available in a more shorter term basis. So, so the problem with COVID is that it has sort of shut down business travel. And in the, the paper we just published in Nature Human Behavior, it shows that business travel impacts productivity, employment, and exports three years down the road. So mm -hmm. the idea is that if you really are moving, if you want, for lack of a better term, if you're really moving technology by moving these brains, you're moving know-how by moving these brains, then that know-how, if it's effective, it should show itself in more productivity. Higher productivity implies that now you want to employ more people and it implies that you're more competitive and that you export more. And we, only, we not only found that at the aggregate level, we found it as, you know, if you get, you know, many Germans coming to your country, maybe you become good at in cars or in chemicals, that is in things that Germany has a comparative advantage in. So, so you get the know-how from the countries that have the know-how. So it shows that, you know, business travel was very important in making, say, the global economy use technology, use know-how. And suddenly, if you're shutting that down for an extended period of time, well, all the problems that would have been solved in that period of time, all the projects that would have been designed, or you know, say your machine breaks down. Well, the repairman comes from another country. He can't travel, so your machine is not being repaired. And you know, as I like to say, you know, time is not a renewable resource. You don't get right. it back. You don't get it back, right? So the time, all the business travel that didn't happen is all a stock of solutions that were not discovered or were not implemented, things that were not done. And maybe you'll travel in the future, but, but you were going to travel in the future anyway. So, so the time you didn't travel is, is, is a loss, is a permanent loss forever. And I think it's going to cause uh, the recovery of say growth to be slower than we would otherwise have thought if we didn't think of this mechanism as important uh, for the use of, of the world's technology. Let me tell you another, another silver lining, which may be also a threat depending on, 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 on your initial conditions. You know, now we've discovered that many things can be done from home, right? But everything that can be done from home through Zoom can be done from abroad. 
Okay, so suddenly, uh, maybe there's going to be a new uh, globalization, uh, a new globalization, an acceleration of globalization in tasks. And these tasks are, have been highly liberalized. I mean, this is what they call in, in uh, WTO parlance, in World Trade Organization parlance, this is called mode one services. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that you might see significant restructuring of value chains to exploit the fact that there is enormous wage differentials for zoomable activities. Uh, for teleworkable -like activities, and that that might be uh, uh, another permanent trend for the future. Uh, right, alongside the fact that you know people can move, would be able to move to wherever they want. I mean, it has to do physically. You can decide to just go elsewhere, which yeah. also might have implications for clusters, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the idea of clusters is that you know you have your labor force pool there, and um, so that might not be a thing anymore. So, yes. Yes, uh, so, so I mean, actually that's, in my mind, that's what, what happened in, in the US uh, in the 2000s and in some sense what led to, to this rage that uh, Trump was able to capture was the idea that um, you had um, many towns in the US that relied on one successful manufacturing plant or exporting firm uh, and that that firm was disrupted by the fact that uh, now you could do things in China, or that much of the value chain could come from China. So, and and once a city loses its uh, export activity, uh, you know the whole city implodes, mm -hmm. and and that that might have been part of the shock of the past. We need to think about the shocks of of the future. Right now, for example. Uh, the movie industry is amazingly concentrated in Los Angeles and New York, right? Why? Because, you know, when you look at a movie, uh, at, at the end of the movie, when it says, you know, the end, it's not really the end. It's the beginning of the credits. And the credits go on for minutes and minutes and minutes. And, and, and it's just amazing to look at the number of different skills that are involved in making that movie. You know, the sound editing and the video editing and the special effects and the original music and the script and the casting and so on and so forth. And all of these activities have been highly concentrated geographically. And the question is, how many of them are going to be more zoomable so that more places can get into the business? And, uh, and that was going to be uh, new opportunities for new places and a challenge for old clusters. Ricardo, we have a lot of, uh, I think, students who are seeing this and RAs and students and undergrads and masters and PhD. So why don't you share with them a word of wisdom from you um, for the future or in their careers? Uh, you know, um, look deep inside you and ask yourself what you find really important. Don't look too much outside you to see what is fashionable for people to be working on. Uh, really follow your, your, your judgment in terms of what are the things that you find truly important and moving because, um, you know, contributing research is really a, a lot of effort. And the way you get energy to do all that effort is by the enthusiasm you put into it. And you get much more enthusiasm if you really believe in the importance of what you're working on. So, so follow your intuition in terms of what is really important to be working on. 
right? Especially if you're going to spend a lot of time crunching data, you really want to love what you're doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Ricardo, thank you so much. Um, hope to see you soon again. And really, this has been wonderful. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And with all that wisdom, we wrap up this episode. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. Please do reach out to us through social media with any questions, comments, suggestions that you might have. The best way to reach us is by visiting our website, www.economistonzoomgettingcoffee.com. There you can access these and all other episodes in their video format, which you can watch anytime. You can also sign up to our mailing list and get news about the future episodes. To contact me directly, please write me an email to host at economistonzoomgettingcoffee.com. And if you like the content, please follow us on social media, in our Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube accounts. Before we go, one more thing. This was our very first episode, and if you liked it, you can really help us grow. How? Well, just take a few seconds of your time, no more, to give us a rating, hopefully a good one, and even leave a comment. It turns out that that little effort from all of you can really help getting the voices of our guests in front of more and more listeners. Thank you again for listening in, and I'll see you in the next episode.